This is the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Good afternoon. I'm Callie Buchanan. Thanks for your company this afternoon. In the next hour, we'll take a look at the latest on the Varroa mite infestations and the plan to try and contain it where it currently is. We'll also get some insights into what it's meant for New Zealand, the arrival of that mite as well. We'll do that before half past 12. And are you suspicious of anything that spruiks itself as sustainable? What does that word even mean to you? When you hear the word sustainable, what does it mean to you? I'd love to hear your view. 0487 993 2. Just in any context, if I said, is that sustainable? What does the word mean to you? One agricultural industry has done some work of its own around what that word means. And you might be interested to learn the outcome of that. That's all still to come on the Queensland Country Hour in the next hour or so. That number again to send me a text, 0487 What does the word sustainable mean to you? I'm keen to hear your views. First today, let's talk about the trade with Indonesia. The Federal Agriculture Minister says Australia will foot the cost of additional biosecurity measures in order to resume live cattle exports with Indonesia. Seven northern Australian export facilities face bans or restrictions on trade with Indonesia after cattle arrived in the country and was then found to have lumpy skin disease. LSD, which is obviously not harmful to humans but can cause blisters and death in cows, is still not detected in Australia. But Senator Murray Watts says the federal government has agreed to conduct broad surveillance for the virus. We've been working very hard for a number of weeks now with the Indonesian government to resolve these issues. And as we've always said, Australia is free of lumpy skin disease. We've been able to prove that through the testing that we've undertaken. And I'm very pleased that a two-day meeting of Australian and Indonesian biosecurity officials has been able to resolve this matter. As we've said all along, Australia is free from lumpy skin disease and we've been able to prove that through the testing that we undertook recently. I'm very pleased that Indonesia has acknowledged that uh, and has now agreed to lift those suspensions and restrictions immediately. So I want to thank everyone who's been involved in this. This has been a big Team Australia moment with government working very closely with industry and our friends in Indonesia and it's a terrific outcome. Uh, an agreement was struck between Australian and Indonesian biosecurity officials. Uh, on the Indonesian side, they have agreed to lift the suspensions and restrictions that they had on place on seven export yards in Australia. And in return, Australia has agreed to a number of conditions that we think are very manageable. So, for instance, uh, we have agreed to undertake broad surveillance of Australian cattle for lumpy skin disease. We've also agreed to make sure that we're performing visual inspections of cattle before they depart Australia. And we've also agreed to bring to Australia a delegation of Indonesian biosecurity officials in a couple of weeks' time so that they can inspect our facilities and see for themselves that we don't have lumpy skin disease and we meet the highest possible standards. The Australian government will meet the extra costs involved here, but we don't think that they're going to be incredibly difficult to meet. Uh, as as I say, there will be a broad surveillance program put in place to build on what we already do, but all of those costs will be borne there by the Australian Government, but we don't expect them to be incredibly high. 
the extra cost that it would be involved would be simply paying for the Indonesian delegation to come to Australia and also some increased surveillance across northern Australia. But that's in everyone's interest to make sure that we're being vigilant about these sorts of diseases. So we think that that's money well spent. The live cattle trade to Indonesia and Malaysia is worth in the order of $900 million a year for Australia. So it's a very important industry and I think it's reasonable to think uh, that this has been a cost in the millions to Australian cattle producers and exporters. But we're very pleased that it's been able to resolve, be resolved quite quickly. Uh, this is an important time of year to be selling and, and, and moving those cattle uh, overseas before we hit the wet season in northern Australia. Um, and we're very pleased that it's been able to be resolved quickly. If anything, I think that this will actually bring Australia and Indonesia even closer together. Uh, as I say, this has been a really Team Australia effort. Uh, I've had contact directly with my counterpart, the Indonesian Agriculture Minister. Both the Prime Minister and our Foreign Minister have raised this matter with their counterparts. And of course, we've had very good cooperation between Australian and Indonesian departmental officials. So I think, if anything, this actually makes the relationship stronger. And it's a testament to the fact that we do have a good relationship with Indonesia, that this has been able to be resolved quite quickly. As I say, I, I think we've actually been able to prove through this exercise that Australia doesn't have lumpy skin disease and that's a good thing for our cattle industry uh, reputation right across the world. Uh, Malaysia was the only other country that decided to impose any suspensions and of course they were removed earlier last week. Uh, we, we made a lot of effort with all of our other trading partners to ensure that they had correct information about the Australian cattle industry and I think Australia's reputation as a reliable, safe, healthy supplier of cattle and beef products is really uh, very much still in store. We recognise that different countries have different biosecurity requirements and there was some discussion between Australia and Indonesia about what the appropriate incubation period to be using was for confirming detections of, of lumpy skin disease. Uh, unfortunately for them, Indonesia has had lumpy skin disease now for a period of time along with foot and mouth disease and sometimes it can be a little bit unclear where the disease has originated but as a result of the testing that we undertook, uh, we have been able to show that Australia doesn't have lumpy skin disease and that's a good thing for our trade with Indonesia but also with the rest of the world. That is Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt speaking over the weekend about the latest on the live cattle export with Indonesia. Australia will foot the cost of additional biosecurity measures in order to resume that trade. It's 12 past 12. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. A little later in the program, we're going to talk about the word sustainable and what one industry has discovered about that word in particular. But I'm keen to know what your view on what it means is. In any context, 0487 993 222, what does the word sustainable mean to you? You can send me a text. JT Notch has done that. They say sustainable is something that will persist and in their view, grain-fed cattle when dependent upon fossil fuels is not sustainable. That's your definition of the word there, sustainable. JT says something that will persist. If you've got a definition or a different view, you can share it with me on 0487 993 When it comes to persistence, I think that's what our macadamia farmers have felt this season has required. The Australian Macadamia Society has revised down the forecast for the 2023 crop. That's from 53,160 tonnes in shell to 48,500 at 3.5% moisture. With 95% of the crop now harvested, Chief Executive Claire Hamilton-Bate explains the factors behind the downgrade. 
primarily seasonal conditions. A number of regions had much lower yields than they originally forecast. And so that, that's contributed to, to the overall number being down. Also, with the low farm gate prices this season, um, there have been a number of growers who've made decisions on farm around harvesting and crop management or, or orchard management that may have meant they haven't harvested their entire crop. For a, for a few, um, haven't harvested at all. Does that have a long-term impact on the orchards if they, if they don't harvest in any given season? Uh, for those that haven't harvested, they're generally mulching in the crop that's on the ground. Um, just they've made an economic decision. The cost of harvest is an, one extra expenditure they didn't want to make. Um, for most, it's probably just reducing harvest rounds, um, so therefore potentially impacting the volume of crop they've collected in. So while the yields aren't where they were expected to be, my understanding, though, is that the quality has been very good. Yeah, the quality has been excellent this season. Um, low reject levels and a high percentage of premium kernel, which is obviously something you really want um, for supply into the market. And speaking of the market, there has been an expansion into some of our international markets. Where is the Australian macadamia crop sitting in terms of our position in the global macadamia market? Okay, so if we're talking volumes, um, the Australian crop this year at just under 50,000 tonnes, we're we're part of a world crop that's 300,000 tonnes or forecast to be this this season. Um, So we're not the dominant player anymore. Um, Large players like South Africa, Kenya, China. We need to differentiate ourselves and we've got some markets where that Australian differentiated position is is widely sought, um, particularly up into the the Asian region, uh, the markets of Korea, Taiwan, Japan. um, And we've got a lot of market development activity happening in India at the moment. I do understand there's going to be a festival in India celebrating macadamia nuts. There is, yes. Festival coming up uh, late September, early October, funded through uh, a Queensland Government grant, the Food and Fibre to Market Programme, which is super exciting because there's so much potential in that Indian market and so much opportunity for a a nut-eating population to um, make the nut of preference macadamias and huge opportunities for growth in the coming years with a tariff reduction that makes uh, it a great market for Australia. When would you expect to see growers seeing some benefits of those markets that we're moving into, particularly around issues like the farm gate price being so low at the moment? Well, we're all hoping that farm gate prices improve as we move into the 2024 season. Clearly, the impacts that the farm gate price this year has had on growers are significant um, across you know, all the regions. Those low prices driven by um, a combination of a rapidly increasing world crop and the impact of COVID. But moving forward, yeah, new market opportunities, new growth. Traditionally, the Australian macadamia industry has been a, an export-driven industry. Um, so we're working on those on new markets as well as our existing markets of uh, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, but building in India but also building in the domestic market as well. And hopefully uh, listeners will have seen the um, original Maccas campaign of a few weeks ago. We've got another big domestic market campaign launching in the coming weeks um, and just trying to build build that market here in Australia um, for Australian consumers to um, consume more of their, their own favourite nut. One of the other uh, things to note from the crop forecast was uh, that the proportion of the crop sold as nut in shell could double this year. What impact is that likely to have on kernel availability? That's one of the interesting dynamics of the season. The nut in shell price that's been offered to growers um, has meant a lot more nut has gone offshore as nut in shell. In a normal season, up to about 30%. This, this year, 
closer to 60%. Now, that's a great opportunity for those sales, nut in shell, but that has meant that there's been um, a reduction of available processing nut and therefore a reduction in kernel. And that has uh, potentially some implications on our long-term kernel markets that have been established over the years. So, you know, both um, opportunity and challenge in that scenario. One of the issues we're watching very closely as we head towards a new season and pollination, particularly in New South Wales, is the the growing number of varroa mite infestations in honeybee colonies. Are you getting any information from your members about any anxieties either in Queensland or those dealing with it in New South Wales around the availability of pollinators? The availability, no. I've had no direct feedback. Um, Obviously, we've got a scenario at the moment with a lot of hives that have been down for almond pollination now needing to move within New South Wales as a state. Traditionally, honeybee hives have been placed on macadamia, into macadamia orchards, quite often to spell those bees. So they've, they've, been, they've been worn out pollinating almonds and they come back and macadamia flowers are something that bees love. And so while some growers do pay for pollination services with European honeybees, a lot just provide a, a place for the bees to rest up and recover from the work they've done in, um, in other pollination crops. There's also a lot of growers who use native bees. So we're not as heavily reliant as crops like almonds. So I've not heard a great deal of angst to date and obviously it's an ongoing situation and we as a as an industry representative body are working very closely with our fellow peak industry bodies that are impacted and the state and um, federal jurisdictions on on that for our response. We have come through a, a period of intense interest in macadamias. I remember doing a story a few years back where you couldn't get a tree for three years because of that interest. Is the interest still there? Are you still getting inquiries, particularly in Queensland, for new people wanting to get into into the industry? There are still plantings going in. There's still growth in the industry. And um, we're just over 41,000 hectares planted currently um, across New South Wales and Queensland. of the crop is planted up here in Queensland and 50% of it here in the Bundaberg region. Um, And yes, that's continuing to grow. And a lot of those trees, probably somewhere between two-thirds or three-quarters are bearing, but the others aren't yet. And so that's going to be a projection of a much-increased crop forecast towards 2025 of sort of 70,000 tonnes plus and then onwards from there so um so yes there's despite the very very tough times that growers have gone through this season and the poor farm gate returns and all the impacts that that has on them on business decisions the long-term outlook um, for the industry uh, i think still remains positive Australian Macadamia Society Chief Executive Claire Hamilton-Bate. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 20 past 12. Send me a text on 0487 993 222. I'm keen to understand what you think the word sustainable means or what it means to you when you hear something like sustainable. Pop your name on your text as well so I can say good day. I've had a couple of uh, responses come through. Sustainable means something or an intervention that is not good for or beneficial for just a day but lasts longer, if not a lifetime. If you've got a, a definition of sustainable, what it means to you, 0487 993 222. Uh, one of the texts says, If it doesn't rain soon, my wife's rate of spending will not be sustainable. Way to use the word in a sentence. Make sure you pop your name on there so I can say g'day. It's uh, 21 past 12. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. 
A new plan to mitigate the costs of eradication of varroa mite was supported at last week's National Management Group meeting. The group confirmed the strategy was to continue with eradication, but with a new risk-based approach to reduce the impact on beekeepers. Since the parasite was detected at the Port of Newcastle in June 2022, more than 28,000 hives have been destroyed, with the number of infested premises now at 264. The change will apply to all new detections, which could mean that only hives of up to three kilometres from an infested premises are destroyed. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries Deputy Director General for Biosecurity and Food Safety, Dr John Tracy, is speaking to Kim Honan. The risk-based plan that allows us to look at each zone in accordance with with what risks that they they have. So that means that we can reduce the um, extent of both the purple and the red zone so the eradication zone and surveillance zones are in accordance to risk and that needs to be done on a case-by-case basis. So, you know, things like length of time, the infestations being there, the mite load, the certainty of links and traces and local factors that may influence the spread of varroa. So these are all important considerations. The, the response team's very experienced now in um, quickly getting on to traces and that should impact, have an effect on the the zones that need to be put in place. So essentially that means that we can be looking to reduce the impact on beekeepers. It means we can be more efficient in our response activity and more successful in terms of our ability to get around and, and do what needs to be done to progress towards eradication. And would you say this is a change or a shift in the response strategy? Um, I think it has. We've we've always looked at providing movements out of zones based on case by case, but this allows us to do that on each each time we get a detection out outside of the core infestation to really reassess, you know, what what are the impacts there and and to go forward. So it is a change, and it and it allows us to fast track that process as well. That we're moving quickly to, and we need to move very fast on this. To, to reduce impact to beekeepers. So this allows us to do that. And so when will this new plan be enacted? It's in place straight after the decision. So we'll, we'll be taking action from now in terms of any new detections that are outside existing zones. We'll have a risk-based um, assessment on how big that zone then needs to be. Does this just apply to new detections? What about the old detections, the, the zones currently in place? Yeah, so um, it, it's set up for this part forward in terms of new detections. Mm, and that will come as a real kick in the guts, I'm sure, to beekeepers in those zones who have had to euthanise hives, though. Oh, look, it's tough. The impact to beekeepers is, is a really, um, it's really difficult. So I think, you know, the important thing for us is that we're basing these decisions on risk. Um, everything we're doing in this response is for beekeepers in, and, and to protect pollination in industries. So that's what we're driven to do. And, we, and for beekeepers, we need to be successful in, in eradication. And was this an approach plan that has been supported by the honey industry? Yes, yeah, so we've got, we've got um, the um, honey industry on board 
So the DPI, is say, you're saying that it's going to mitigate costs. How will it actually do that? How How is it going to save this, you know, $132 million response money? So I think a risk-based approach helps us do that because it reduces the the number of impacted beekeepers. It allows more beekeepers to get back to business, and that's a critical consideration. And, and it will reduce impact in terms of the, the number of um, hives that needs to be euthanised and the, the further surveillance, ongoing surveillance cost associated with a, a broader zone. And you say back to business, let's talk about that um, three years before beekeepers are able to have hives again in those red zones. Will there be a change to that? So in, in terms of progressing towards eradication, we need to make sure that those zones are free from parole mite before bees go back into those zones. So it'll be assessed, that's assessed on data, so that time frame can vary depending on what the surveillance data is telling us. So if we, if, if we get confirmation over a period that varroa is free, we can we can reassess that timeline. But it does need to be uh, a time frame that can demonstrate that freedom in the bee population. Dr John Tracy, Deputy Director General for Biosecurity and Food Safety with the New South Wales DPI, speaking to Kim Honan. And as Australia grapples with the spread of varroa mite in the bee populations, it's worth having a look at the lessons that can be learnt from the New Zealand experience. They've had varroa for more than 20 years and beekeeper Barry Foster has been involved in the management program over that entire period. He's semi-retired now but has been past president of the Apiculture New Zealand Association. He's a member of their research council and was a significant honey producer. He's speaking here with David Clawton. Prior to Varroa arriving, I was a, a certified organic producer of honey and I was exporting manuka and another one, honey called tawari from a native tree. And once Varroa was found in my hives, I had to use synthetic chemicals. So I had to lose, lost those export markets, lost that uh, certification as an organic producer, and I became a, a standard beekeeper, if you like. like so there's all the no organic honey in New Zealand anymore then? Not that I know of, although we're getting to a stage now where the use of organic acids, uh, particularly um, formic acid and oxalic acid in various ways, and probably with thymol, they're, they're organically registered um, chemicals. So we may be getting in the next few years to a stage where, where some beekeepers can use those. And certainly those beekeepers who are not on the game uh, are no longer with us. Uh, right. So quite a few beekeepers who, who you know, have just gone out of the business, yeah? Yes. You'll, have you got any find... numbers on that? Um, it could could have been a third of beekeepers and many hobbyists gave up because they didn't want to deal with this. The other thing I'll mention too is a spike in American fowl brood and maybe a European fowl brood. Is, as Barra goes through various states and territories, it will kill the feral hives and some of those will be affected particularly with European fowl brood and, and, and American fowl brood and they will reinfect other uh, managed types nearby. So you're likely to see a, a spike in other infections like those two. You said, you know, perhaps up to a third 
left the game because it got too difficult. But were beekeepers badly affected by the outbreak of Varroa and the attempts to eradicate or, or, or you know, the, uh, the whole business of it? Oh, yes, definitely. I f- fully remember a, uh, a conference we had in my city, Gisborne, here in the year 2000. And um, beekeepers were extremely worried about the future. There was a lot of uncertainty there and and a lot a big fall in business confidence as a result of this infection we we just didn't know what the future was that's why it's so important to get around and train beekeepers to talk with beekeepers to have regional meetings preferably regional cooperation on uh, treatment timing and and what you're using work together as much as you can uh, because if you don't work together and you go and do your own little thing and live in your own world as a beekeeper that helps Faroa and that's that's my experience of it. And what about recovery how long did it take the industry to kind of get out the other end and and recover their production and uh, recover their business activity Mm -hmm. recover pollination services because we haven't talked about that very much either. Fairly, it was a fairly quick uh, turnaround. I think probably within a year or two, we'd gone through the the most difficult mental health period, and and we were seeing opportunities out there. There was demand for pollination. Uh, Manuka honey was uh, growing in popularity in markets, so it it helped to lift the confidence of the industry. So you might see a shakedown in Australia of the players, but, but ultimately the opportunities are, are there because if you come out the other end because you, you'll be paying more for your honey, quite likely you'll be paid more for your pollination services, there'll be a higher demand for those things. Yes, yes. And the other thing is that too, um, we noticed is that the uh, level of competency of beekeepers lifted as a result of varroa infection. You, you have to be a better beekeeper and more on your game and more uh, and better planning than before, uh, so so that's probably going to be another result, a positive result for your beekeepers. Apiculture New Zealand's past president, Barry Foster, with some insights in New Zealand living with varroa mite for 20 years. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 29 to 1. We'll get the latest from the Weather Bureau in just a moment, what you can expect from the week ahead. But I'm asking you this afternoon what the word sustainable means to you. Send me a text with your name on it on 0487 993 2 about what that word means for you. Chris in Rocky has said, sustainable and organic are words that people use to make people believe that they're doing the right thing, but it can also be misleading in advertising. Interesting perspective, Chris. We're going to have a look at some of that uh, before one o'clock as well. John at Tolga says, good afternoon. Sustainable means the product can be produced without ripping the guts out of the environment. That's what it uh, means to John. And uh, Mick at Majors Creek has texted me on 0487 2 to say, if you're a sheep, shearing is sustainable. Skinning is not sustainable. Uh, good of you to speak up on behalf of the sheep there, Mick. If you've got a view, I'd like to hear it 0487993222. We'll take a look at what sustainable means to some people uh, before one o'clock. Let's get the latest now, though, from the Weather Bureau and have a look at the week ahead. Shane Kennedy is the forecaster on duty. Good afternoon, Shane. Good afternoon, Kelly. 
How are we looking? Uh, it was a bit chilly this morning. Have we seen the last of that uh, cold snap pass through? So it shouldn't be quite as cold anymore. So, yeah, probably got cold enough for some frost inland and a few places in, in inland southern Queensland over the on Sunday and this morning, but it should warm up a little bit over the next day or two. But generally... Uh, at or below average for the next uh, several days, really, across the state. So it was fairly warmer over the weekend uh, in northern Queensland, but that should be returning to average over the weekend, and we'll see those temperatures a degree or two below for, for most places starting from today and continuing until the weekend. How are we looking across the state in terms of, of the, the forecast, the major features? So still still seeing some uh, showers along parts of the east coast, so mainly around the north tropical coast at the moment, but also around the southeast today. So a few showers pushing on shore around uh, Maryborough, uh, inland to Maryborough and uh, just around the Sunshine Coast at the moment. And expecting those to be hot spots over the next couple of days, so the north tropical coast and the, the southeast coast area. And may see a few little light showers elsewhere in, or in between along the coast, but you're not expecting it to push too far inland in the next uh, couple of days. With the exception maybe we might see something reach inland as far as the Lockyer Valley or Toowoomba, but expecting it to be pretty light overall, Kelly, just a millimetre or two here and there for most places. I do know that there are some fire, high fire danger ratings in particularly parts of the Western District, Central Northern Interior and the Wide Bay and Burnett. Uh, how long are we like to see those conditions hang around? So we'll see that, that high fire danger contract a little bit further inland uh, from tomorrow, but persistent in the northwest and that, that northern and central interior for several days, really. So just some dry air settling over uh, much of the inland parts of the state, keeping us in that high fire danger and that the winds are just enough to maintain that. So... Dropping down to moderate elsewhere, so including mainly uh, eastern districts and, and uh, far southern districts as well, but likely to still see ongoing fires. There's still a few uh, through the central highlands, and of course that big one uh, in, uh, near Cumberilla mm. in the Darling Downs. So I believe that's mostly contained at the moment, but yes, likely still be burning for a little bit still. And in terms of uh, on the coast, there's a couple of marine wind warnings getting about as well? That's right, yeah, that's the other feature at the moment. So quite a strong ridge of high pressure maintaining uh, maintaining those winds across the state and likely to see that persist for several days really as a, as a high pressure system is very slow moving. So strong wind warnings extending from the Torres Strait all the way down to the Capricornia waters today and will likely continue at least for the next few days and most likely go all the way to the weekend unfortunately. And So just in those southeasterlies in that 20 to 30 knot range. It's, uh, so the Gulf of Carpentaria is spared at the moment but it'll, like could well see some mornings return there from Wednesday and Thursday. And, and even the, in the far southeastern waters, Kelly, it's still pretty fresh there. So southeasterly is in that 15 to 25 knot range, uh, south of Harvey Bay. So not expecting any warnings, but yeah, it'll still be pretty uh, fresh and choppy out there. Anything else we should be across with the next couple of days, Shane? So I'd likely see these uh, showers persist for the next several days there, Kelly, mm-hmm. though weakening up a little bit more on the sort of Thursday, Friday period and just, just a light chance we could, or a low chance we could see a thunderstorm or two in the southeast on Wednesday. A bit of a, a trough is crossing in the upper atmosphere which can just uh, really help destabilise things. So just a low chance we could see a storm or two there. And, and then probably the only other thing to mention will be we'll start to see those temperatures warming up in uh, southwestern Queensland starting on about Wednesday or Thursday this week and pushing in through the southern interior uh, towards the end of the week and over the weekend. So it's Certainly nowhere near the sort of uh, temperatures we're expecting to see in New South Wales where they'll be 10 plus degrees above average, but we can still be getting into the 5 to 8 degrees above average uh, towards the end of the week. So it should be fairly mild for the majority of the state, but the exception being that far southwest and southern interior will start to heat up late in the week. We'll keep an eye on it. Shane, thank you very much for your time on the Queensland Country Hour. Thanks, Kelly. Have a good afternoon.
Shane Kennedy, the forecaster on duty at the Weather Bureau. It's 24 to 1. This is the Queensland Country Hour. And I'm asking you this afternoon what the word sustainable means to you. You can send me a text on 0487 993 2. Uh, I'd love you to pop your name and where you're from on there so I can uh, say g'day. Robert Blackall has done that. He says, sustainability is any genuine, dedicated effort whereby persistence beats resistance. Quite a few good uh, definitions of sustainable getting about. I'd love to hear yours as well. 0487 993 We'll be talking about that word in just a moment. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Now, as large parts of the landscape across the state continues to recover from years of drought, attention has been turned to rehydration and regeneration. There's lots of work being done across Queensland's rangelands to regenerate degraded landscapes. While much of that work is supported by First Nations people, in Western Queensland's Mythica Aboriginal Corporation, They're reminding landholders to be mindful of culturally significant sites on their properties. Josh Gorringe is the general manager of the group and he spoke with Madeline McCosker about cultural sites and the role native plants can have in the regeneration process. Well, the big thing out southwest Queensland and, and, and other parts of Queensland and Australia, obviously, Due to the population growth, we don't have a high population, so a lot of our sites are out there untouched. So just bringing it to the forefront that as much as it's great for the environment to to rehabilitate and regenerate and rejuvenate the country, it's also you got to, obviously when putting contour banks in and stuff, people have got to be aware of the cultural sites that they could be going through and, and unintentionally destroying or in some cases intentionally destroying. Um, so just bringing that to the forefront that people are aware of cultural sites and stuff that are out there upon their landscape when they're, when they're doing these contour banks and stuff. What should people be looking out for? Um, large flaking areas where, where there's obviously um, sandstone quarries, flaking areas where the stone tools were made from, um, mainly on your Silk Creek country, your sandstone country. And if you do come across anything like that, uh, grindstones that are randomly, they, they've been put beside waterholes or in trees that might be removed for putting in some of these timbered walls, um, sacred scars, trees and stuff like that and um, obviously contact your local or your, your whoever you know that's um, of the area. You also mentioned in there, you know, the importance of restoring native species in, in the landscape and how that's going to help restore the soils. Like if, if, if we're not bringing back native species, it's, it's kind of a, a bit pointless because it's not going to be doing as much work as we'd like it to. Can you walk me through that? Basically... Through my own observations and a lot of people that I know, everyone sort of goes towards buffel, planting buffel um, as a go-to sort of crop because it needs a little bit of rain and it'll wipe out some of the other species and stuff. But it's not good for the soil quality. Um, There's places down around the Arcadia Valley and places that I know of elsewhere that the soil quality is getting less and less. There's no goodness left in the soil, so they obviously, as from a grazing perspective, you're adding more and more supplement to your livestock to maintain the weight that you had in them on the on the original when you originally planted the buffalo. So I would strongly encourage everyone to be more looking at native grasses, your flinders, your Mitchell, your summer grasses, because they're naturally from this area. And and obviously they're hard to get 
those seeds because everyone, all the seed banks have got imported um, seeds and stuff like that to, oh, well, we'll fix this with an imported stuff. Obviously, as we know, with the prickly acacia, it was put in for drought resilience and all that, and we know how much of a huge problem it's become and not being managed as good as it should be. So with native grasses, it brings, it'll bring back the biodiversity that's lacking in the, in the country at the moment. Josh Gorringe, he's the General Manager of the Mythica Aboriginal Corporation, speaking with Madeline McCosker. It's 19 to 1 on the Queensland Country Hour, and I've been asking you what the word sustainable means to you. 0487993222. Pat from Yapoon uh, sent me a message. He says, we were in South Africa near Cape Town, and a choice on the dinner menu was sustainable fish. My wife, with the inquiring mind, asked the waiter what kind of fish was sustainable. I think he thought it was a bit of a strange question and replied it was sustainable. So we weren't really any the wiser. We think it's a common dish on their menu and presume it means fish that are easily reproduced and not endangered, possibly bred in fish farms. It's an interesting story, Pat, because it seems that there's a lot of flexibility around the word sustainable and what it means to different people. And if that's left you feeling a little suspicious of those things, people, products, places claiming to be sustainable, you're definitely not alone. The emerging seaweed industry recently conducted a survey to discover what sustainability actually means. And as it moves closer to production, PhD researcher Zoe Britton has explained to Karen Hunt that there were some surprising results that could apply to other farming operations. We were expecting big differences between, you know, business investors or activists or artists, but surprisingly, even considering age groups and gender, we actually had the same sort of thoughts come out from everyone, really. Everyone is a bit suspicious of this term, sustainable. You know, it can mean a huge range of things to different people. Maybe it's protecting the environment. Maybe it's replacing harmful products. Or maybe sustainability means creating good local jobs to support the local community. And so people seem to be a bit suspicious of this term when it's not well defined. And so the number one um, takeaway from all these different types of people was they really want transparency around what exactly are people talking about when they say that? And they don't expect people to be perfect. They don't have to be 100% sustainable as long as they're honest. And is that why this project was needed, to actually nail down that definition that everybody can get on board with? Because seaweed, you know, can be grown offshore, so it doesn't take up land space, um, doesn't need a lot of fertilisers necessarily, and can be used to replace a lot of, like, uh, otherwise harmful products. People are sort of just getting so worked up about the potential and how exciting it is. And this research came in to maybe help us slow down and think a bit more about what we mean when we say sustainable and wanting to ensure that any projects that do develop have what we call social license, which is that sort of social trust and acceptance from local communities. And so they can hopefully be long lasting and beneficial to everyone involved. Given that you work in the seaweed sector we can see why this research is interesting for that sector but could it then be extrapolated to other industries that don't involve seaweed? Yeah I think the really amazing thing we found from this research talking to people is even the people we spoke to who 
didn't have maybe a very high understanding of exactly how seaweed would be grown or farmed, were able to draw on their knowledge and experiences of other industries and maybe where they've done it wrong or done it right and able to apply that to what they would expect from a well-run seaweed industry. And I think there is potential from the learnings here to really think about the ways we are already doing things on land or, or in other marine industries. And so how we can make sure it's a really um, holistically sustainable um, enterprise. According to your research, what does sustainable seaweed look like? Yeah, well, that's a really um, big question, isn't it? And the number one thing we sort of came, other than the transparency that we came away with, was this idea of location, location, location. So it's actually almost impossible to describe what a sustainable seaweed enterprise would look like on a large scale or in a general term, because it'll be so dependent on the exact area where the farming will take place. And that's for a range of reasons. Maybe we can say that seaweed has great potential for sucking up all the nasties from the water and cleaning the water. But if you've got an area that already has low nutrients in the water and the seaweed's sucking up all of those nutrients, well, what could be a positive has become a negative. And so these were the sort of things people were concerned with. And they, they really want this sustainable idea to be really tied to the exact area it's in so we can be really specific about what the potential benefits are. PhD researcher Zoe Britton from Deakin University speaking with Karen Hunt. And that's what sustainable will mean for the seafood industry, uh, seaweed industry, I should say. I'd like to know what you think it means for you. 0487 is the number to send me a text, just like Gomez from Umundi has done. A landline story on Sunday about sandalwood mentioned the practice of Harvest One, Plant 40. Now, that's sustainable. If you didn't see that episode, remember, you can always catch up on Landline on ABC iView and get the latest episode there. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. And another text just dropped in from Mark who says, My definition of sustainable, if we primary producers can't do what we're doing for hundreds of years without doing harm, it's not sustainable. Very interesting. I'm interested that there's a lot of discussion around the techniques and this idea of sustainability being linked to environmental sustainability. Uh, interesting. There's only been that one mention of uh, pot- potentially economic sustainability uh, if uh, if it doesn't rain soon. I've been very interested to see the uh, the broad range of texts coming through. Please keep sending them in zero four eight seven double nine three triple two. Now uh, there's a lot of animals on farms, but we all know that there are inside animals and there are outside animals. And if you're one of those people that spoils the inside animals. You're definitely not alone. Aussies are expected to spend close to $303 million just on dog treats this year. Now, with her all-woman workforce and biscuits that look good enough for a human to eat, Emma Gibbons is breaking into a multi-billion dollar global market and is in this week's finals of the National AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. These are for the doggies. Merry Christmas bones we have here, getting ready for Christmas season. And that's done. That's another 
Welcome to Hudson Toke. I'm Emma Gibbons. We're manufacturing all of our dog treats and horse treats right here in Coolum at the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. They look like they've got icing on them. You've got them in biscuit shapes, cake shapes, all sorts of things. Yeah, that's exactly right. So they're brought out at birthday parties for dogs and at coffee dates with dogs. So we sell a lot to cafes, bringing a little bit of joy into people's lives by sharing a happy moment with their dog. That's what we really want to achieve. And I think we have achieved that by all the Instagram tags we get and then we've done it with the horses as well we've created like really beautiful cookies for horses so they can be rewarded at the end of the day after all their hard work that they do for their riders and some of the treats you make I mean they look good enough for people to eat yeah I think they are often mistaken (laughs) and and people do play tricks on their kids But yes, they are designed to appeal to the human eye, but once again, they're made with dogs' health in mind. Dog treats and dog food, big business. Yeah, it's a massive business. So the pet food market in Australia is worth over $3.7 billion per annum. The pet treat segment is worth in excess of $302.9 million. Then the US market is just like greatly magnified. We're looking at in excess of $50 billion alone in the US. So we only need a little bit of that to, you know, keep us going. (laughs) What year did you actually found the company? Um, In 2012, it began we sat around the table and came up with the retail name of Hudson Toke. So Hudson Toke came from our son's imaginary dragons, <laughs> Toke and Hudson, and we were sitting there and he was playing with them behind us and we're like, well, they mean a lot to us as a family, so let's turn it into the brand name. You, you don't have a picture when you hear that name, so we get to the, build that picture in your head of, you know, quality and world-class and all of that and creating like planet-friendly pet products. We can see that traditional meat sources are getting harder to get, are more expensive. And we really wanted to look at sustainable options. And we um, saw that insects were a really viable alternative to traditional meat, mostly because of their sustainability. And dogs absolutely love them. So the insects we use are Australian-grown soldier fly larvae. Their whole purpose in life is to compost food waste matter like within 14 days they can be then turned into a really high protein meal it's like 60 percent protein with the horse treats you're actually utilizing vegetables yeah so we're working with farmers in the scenic rim in queensland to utilize excess vegetables and turn them into vegetable protein powders so to speak then we input them into our horse treats like our carrot bix our veggie tubes which have got carrot and beetroot we actually utilized the pumpkin in our usa crispy cream donuts because they were a pumpkin spice flavor so the little old queensland pumpkin is sitting on shelves across the u.s at the moment (laughs) donut form (laughs) we're selling across australia now to pet shops produce stores saddlery stores and we sell globally with a collaboration with Krispy Kreme Donuts to the USA, UK and New Zealand, which has been just so exciting. How on earth did you end up clinching that deal? They loved our products and said, do you think you could design a um, donut that looks like some of our best sellers? I went, absolutely. And they said, we'd love to collaborate, which is just such an amazing opportunity for a little Queensland brand like ours. We have um, turned it into a year-on-year event and we're slowly owning International Dog Day across the world. <laughs> so these are dog treats that look like donuts. They look sweet and delicious, but they're made specifically for dogs, so they do not taste like they look. 
They're not sweet, they're nutty. And what I think is really interesting about your business too, Emma Gibbons, is that apart from your husband, Russell, you've got an all-female workforce. Yes, I do. Yeah, we're a great crew here of varying backgrounds and diverse age groups. We all get on really well. We put in a massive effort as a team to help each other. A fun, outgoing team that all really enjoy what we do. Was it a conscious decision to hire women? Um, it's sort of just morphed in that way in the last two to three years and it's just gelled really well and worked really well. And Russell goes okay with all of that? <laughs> Yes, he just calls himself the heavy lifter, but Russell is a very integral part to our business and we couldn't do it without him either. You've been named the Queensland winner of the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. What did that mean to you? Oh, it meant so much. I'm a country girl. I was born and bred in country Queensland. I feel that I can showcase what good old hard country work can do to create a successful international business. The AgriFutures Rural Women's Award has just been an amazing experience. I found it so supportive and positive. I'm just thrilled to be a part of it because of all the other amazing finalists that I'm standing beside. We've become an amazing sisterhood, which is really unique as well. I hope I can inspire lots more women to um, be more entrepreneurial in the agricultural landscape and take those little risks here and there and go with their crazy ideas. If I can be a voice for that, that's awesome. That is AgriFutures Queensland Rural Women's Award winner Emma Gibbons speaking with Jennifer Nichols. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's six minutes to one. Your fire plan should consider what you'll do if you and your family cannot leave your property and are forced to escape from a burning house during an intense bushfire. You need to think about when you would leave, what you'd take and what you'd do with your pets. Being prepared with contingency plans for different scenarios will help to keep you calm and increase your chances of survival. Keep listening to ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. That is the best place to get the latest information as it comes to hand. Of course, you can always follow your local team on Facebook and head online to the ABC emergency page to see the latest in all incidents and warnings. And there is high fire dangers around the state today. So definitely keep across that if you're in one of those areas like the Western Districts, the Central and Northern Interior and the Wide Bay and Burnett. Now, just before we get to the markets, let's talk about gold. Production fell 9% this past financial year to 306 tonne. Now, that's according to mining industry consultants, Suburban Associates, who crunch the numbers each year. Director Dr Sandra Close says wet weather and lower grades being processed contributed to the lower total. For the 2022-23 uh, financial year, the total was 306 tonnes, less than we've seen for some years, about 10 tonnes or 9% or so lower than the uh, previous financial year. But it just depends on what happens in those four quarters and they can be up and down that affects that full total. But we're still sitting at over 300 tonnes of gold a year and uh, that's not a bad outcome. No, not a bad outcome and um, worth a pretty penny at the moment too. Sure is. The price has been uh, hovering around the $3,000 per ounce mark in, in Aussie dollars and in fact for the last quarter 
the average for the whole of the June quarter has been uh, $2,956 an ounce exactly and about $200 an ounce more than in the March quarter. So the prices are very high and they're still, as you say, t today even hanging up around that $3,000 an ounce mark. High prices and I see that costs have actually decreased. Yes, we don't often report this but because we've uh, put through quite a few more tonnes and at a higher grade, the costs have actually fallen in the June quarter compared to the March quarter. And while people get very uh, distressed if costs do go up, what they don't realise is that it really depends very much on grade and tonnage treated and that varies. What was the reason for that drop in the financial year, Sandra? Well, in, in the financial year, it was really the March quarter, the very low March quarter with the rain that uh, affected the, the numbers for the full year very much. But in this, in this latest quarter, of course, it's picked up again uh, and there's been about higher tonnages, about an extra 3 million tonnes in this last quarter compared to the uh, earlier in the year. And because it's been nice and dry, uh, they haven't had to treat low-grade stockpiles as they did earlier in the year. So the grades were up as well and therefore more gold. Suburbiton Associates Director Dr Sandra Close speaking with Tara Landgraft. And we're almost off to the markets. I do want to let you know that Q, Queensland Fire and Emergency have advised that that fire around the Coona area in the Wide Bay and Burnett is threatening the community there. Keep listening to ABC Wide Bay for updates throughout the afternoon. We'll bring you the latest as it comes to hand. Now, that fire was burning in that sort of Burham Coast National Park area uh, around Palm Beach Road and Gulchett Drive at Coona. Uh, there is some uh, issues there, so keep listening as we get those details. We'll bring them to you. Of course, head online to abc.net.au slash emergency for the latest, and you can follow ABC Wide Bay on Facebook too if you're in the area. <coughs> Now off to the Toowoomba cattle sale. Trevor Hess has the details. The supply of stock at Toowoomba today experienced very little change from the previous week at 221 head. Buyer attendance was good with the return to the regular panel of feeder operators plus the usual buying group. There was a wide variation in the standard of the young cattle, however it was the best quality lineup of heavyweight cows and bulls for some time. Apart from heavyweight yielding steers to feed and the good lineup of heavyweight cows and bulls receiving fair demand, the remainder of the yarding experienced very little support. Lightweight yielding steers to restock has made to 218 yielding steers to feed for the domestic market, average from 209 to 215, sales to 228. Heavyweight yielding steers to feed made to 286 to average 252. Yielding heifers under 280 kilos to restock has made to 188 to average 160. Medium weight two score cows average 131 on sale to 160. Good heavyweight cows made to 205, a fair sample at 187. Some returning $1,446 a head. Heavyweight bulls made to 186. This has been Trevor Hess from MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. And that's it for the Queensland Country Hour today. Nearly time for the news at one o'clock. Remember, if you're in that Kincuna or Kuna area in the Wide Bay and Burnett, keep listening to the ABC for the latest.